Hello, welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection between behavioral science and psychology. My name is Guthrie. I'm here with Susan. Hello. Hey, Guthrie. And with us today, we have very special guest, Kevin M. Hoffman, author of the book Meetings Design for Managers, Makers, and Everyone from Rosenfeld Media, also the VP of Design at Capital One. Hey, Kevin. Hey, I'm one of a few VPs of Design, but Capital One's a big company, so that's fine. <laughs> Well, thanks for thanks for uh, jump, jumping on uh, the wonderful podcast with us today. Um, uh, hey, I got a question right away. Yeah, shoot. Yeah. Does everyone now feel uncomfortable when they invite you to a meeting? Uh, I get that sometimes. Um, like because <laughs> because they didn't plan the meeting in any special way, and they know you wrote this book called Meeting Design, and so now they feel like you're going to critique the meeting. Yeah. I, I get that sometimes, um, but it's usually only like the first time. And, <laughs> and, um, often people don't really know, people in my work environment don't really know me in that world. So the the Rosenfeld media space and the, that that um, that publisher is is publishing a lot of books at the intersection of design and business. Um, so the designers on my team know the books, um, and some of the designers in the larger Capital One organization definitely know uh, me in that space. But I would say the vast majority of people that I meet with don't know or care um, about the fact that I've written a book about meetings from a design perspective. So, um, But when they find out, they're curious and they ask questions about it. Um, and I'm always happy to give people a copy or, or you know share ideas. But yeah, I mean... I think that, I mean, if I'm being honest, the, the flip side of that is actually really rewarding, which is, so uh, there was a person who reported to me that uh, was promoted to this new role uh, as a really good move for him. And we had his mid-year performance evaluation as one does in a large company. And his new manager and, and him and I were meeting and uh, the purpose of the conversation was just to talk about, you know, what it's like to manage this this person, uh, and what are some of the things that we focused on, and you know, how can we really continue to support his success. And in that conversation, the person that I used to manage, uh, he said, and it, uh, he might have been trying to stay on brand, but he said one of my favorite things about being managed by Kevin was. The, that without any, without feeling like it's deliberate, the time we spent in our one-on-one -on -one meetings and in other kinds of meetings and in workshops and, and, and other contexts, it just felt really powerful and deliberate and intentional. Um, and seeing how to do that by example, but not being held to that in my own planning of meetings, I feel like I'm more well-equipped to manage people that he's managing now in the nature of, um, by the nature of the way that I approach that problem, um, you know. So he was kind of learning by example. Yeah, like I, I think that is something that is the flip side of the, oh, the, I have to meet with the meeting guy. It's like <laughs> um, I actually have had a bunch of meetings with the meeting guy. And the thing that was really interesting to me is that the thing that he took from the way I did things and the way he applied it 
is not at all what I would have done. So that's kind of one of the things I'm trying to get across in the book. Uh, and we can talk more about the book if you like, or, or we can just talk about TV and movies if you want. But um, the, the, the thing is, that I think people think of is this idea of good and bad design outside of the meeting as an object. The idea of design as a portable and repeatable process, uh, meaning that I could learn how to design a thing, like let's say, you know, where I work in, at Capital One, we design the experience of paying your credit card bill. That if I could design that here, I could then go to American Express or I could go to Discover and be just as good at designing that thing because I know how to design a good experience. And to some degree that is true, but the point about meetings that I try to make in the book and the point that, that I think is true of design as a practice is the most powerful variable in good design is context. So the idea that my the person that reported to me, he saw how I used meetings and the decisions I would make about how I started a meeting and how I behaved in the meeting and how I might capture content from the meeting and how I'd use the content in other ways. What he took from that, and then when he went to this new context in July, um, he was doing things with meetings that would have never occurred to me, but he was doing it because he was responding to the context of his new team. And that is like very gratifying to see, to, to not say, you know, it's not about the tricks. It's not about like, oh, when you're facilitating a meeting, the first thing you should say is, what do we all want to get out of this meeting? Like, that's a hack. It's in the book. It's a, a lot of people use that hack. I learned it from somebody and, you know, somebody else learned it from somebody else. The hacks are the things that we use to learn about the context. So if I start a meeting by saying, what do we want to get out of this meeting, everybody on Team X? And I do that for four months for a weekly meeting or, a, or you know, a regular meeting. If I do it long enough, I'm going to learn about the context and then change the behaviors and design in the way I, I run that meeting to suit the context of that team. And, and that's really the main thing uh, that I want to get across in the idea of the book is designing meetings is about having a really clear relationship with your context and making intentional decisions about how you use time and how you behave in those contexts that serve the outcomes you're trying to reach. So anyway, that's me getting off my soapbox. Yeah, no, that, that's interesting. I mean, because I think if if someone didn't know the book, right, or, yeah. or or didn't know about your background as a designer, you know, if you see a book about meetings, you think, okay, they're going to tell you, you know, have a start and end time, have clear objectives, you know, I mean, all the kind of usual things we hear about meetings and like you said it's more of a recipe or a step-by-step um, a -step guide and that reminds me somewhat if we if we you know again making that analogy to the design space that would be like you know you have a set of guidelines about around um, interface design or branding or right you know yeah. at, at this at this company we 
put we use colons or we don't use colons or we left a line or we write a line or we right we yeah. put the labels on top and, and when we do forms and that and those are the, like the things you're supposed to follow but you could follow all of those things when you're designing a, an interface and have a really poor interface if you don't understand the tasks and who's using it and what the workflow is and you haven't designed for that and and so it's similar with this you know meeting I'm I think it's kind of analogous to that because yeah there are certain things you you one might do in a meeting um, or not do in a meeting that in general tends to make the meetings useful or not but that's not what you know meeting design is about you know, yeah. it's it's about given given the people that are there and the situation and what we're coming together to talk about. You know, what is the best way to design this this space, which happens to be, um, a, you know, meetings are are really they're quite odd, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the whole idea is kind of. I mean, we it's one of those things that it's so ubiquitous that we we don't stop usually to look at it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's well, like conversation, right? I mean, we talk all the time, so we don't stop to think about the way we have conversations and how that might affect our lives or the story or, you know, that, that relationship. And in the same way, I think we are so used to meetings in the workplace or even yeah. outside the workplace mm -hmm. that we don't, we don't realize how important it is and how much we can design it. I think a lot of people would feel like, well, I can't design it, you know? Yeah. There's, there's a whole, there's so much in what you just said that I think I would like a hundred percent agree with. Um, and there's a the few concepts that come to mind for me um, that are really interesting to think about. The first is, uh, you know, talking about the analogy of design um, in terms of designing an interface. Another one I, I like is cooking, right? So when I talk about design uh, as a practice, I, I think a designer is somebody who can develop and understand the way a recipe works and why. A order taker is somebody who, I, I don't know if either of you use the services like Blue Apron or, um, or uh, HelloFresh where you get a box and all of the ingredients are already measured and you have really clear steps to follow. Like, I would not consider myself a chef if I can follow those orders, but I could probably cook a really good meal. And in fact, as a Blue Apron customer for a while, I cooked a lot of really good meals that, you know, my family was like, this is great, except my son who's 12, who doesn't really like that kind of food at this point. Um, but I probably could not like go into a kitchen, look at the recipe, or the, sorry, at the things that are in that kitchen and make a great meal from what's in front of me, knowing how different elements interact, different, you know, tastes, profiles, and, and you know, what my overall goal is in terms of I want to create a, a really thick, robust feeling, like I want something that's heavy in my stomach, or I want a light summery thing or whatever. Like, I really think of meeting design as learning how to cook, not learning how to follow a recipe. And um, the interesting thing about learning how to cook that I think is very analogous to meetings and that I think about when you talk about conversation 
I think conversation is a thing that is like meetings in business or in life. They're an assumed skill, but it's highly keyed on assumptions of neurotypical people. And uh, having some non-neurotypical people in my life early, like well before I wrote this book, I started to realize in meetings that there was a relationship between organizational or team culture and what that culture values implicitly or explicitly and how meetings manifest. So meetings are evaluated as successful or not based on what is valued in that culture. And I observed a thing uh, I work in uh, traditionally, I've worked in web design uh, for, I don't know, a long time, uh, more than 25 years. And I observed this thing early in my career where certain kinds of people would be unsuccessful in certain kinds of meetings. So if I was part of a, a public relations team and they're very verbal and, and talking about narrative and what is the narrative that we're pitching to uh, the press to get them to write stories about, you know, this thing we're doing. People who are designers or developer designers who are more introverted, not all designer developers are more introverted, but some of them are, would not have success in those meetings and come to resent those meetings um, for valid reasons. And thinking about design as not only context, but inclusivity. The idea that you can design a thing that's inclusive by choice from the beginning and thinking about the relationship between the different kinds of ways people process content and how they might do that in real time or if they can do it in real time and what kinds of activities and conversations you design to accommodate that. Um, you know, a funny story that my wife probably won't mind me telling. Uh, my wife can't stand questions. Like, you know, I'll ask her questions at the end of the day. Like, how was your day? What happened at work? Uh, how did you feel about that? And for her, questions are a really invasive feeling thing. Um, and that's fine. You know, that, that there's nothing right or wrong about that. But it's just how I learned to process the world, uh, probably from my parents and from my experiences in school and on and on. So thinking about, you know, how do you develop your own facilitation kind of sense, your your ability to read a room as a facilitator if you're running a meeting, and if you're not running a meeting, if you're present in a meeting, to think about and have empathy for the users of that meeting, which are the other attendees. Um, you know, those are, those are just a couple of things that occurred to me uh, in that conversation metaphor and design metaphor. So, so how, I, I, you know, as you're talking and I'm thinking about about, of course, my own experience with meetings, and I, I was just thinking about, I was thinking about two particular recent meetings I've been in, one in which I was definitely one of the designers of the meeting, mm -hmm. and another in which um, I was not the designer of the meeting and really felt like... Uh, excluded from being able to be a designer of the meeting and feeling that 
the no one had designed the meeting, <laughs> you know? and and um, such so, you know such a different right such a different feeling those two meetings. So what do you do? You know, what's your approach to uh, a meeting in which you've been invited to the meeting, but you've not been invited, uh, and or your your suggestions to be involved in the design have been rebuffed. So, you know, you're in a meeting, it's, you know, whoever is supposedly designing the meeting is not, has not designed the meeting. You know, how do you deal with a situation like that as, as being a participant and not a designer? Yeah. So, uh, First thing, like the caveat to anything I say is context. So there's always contextual variables that, um, you know, in a generalized example like this, they're really hard to, you know, they're going to play a role in a lot of what you might or might not do. At a general, to, at a general level, there are a couple of things that I tell people that I try, things that I do in the context that you're describing. And... Um, uh, I'm definitely in that context. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Like being an executive at a bank doesn't mean I'm not in meetings that I don't have control over. So there, as even as a CEO, you're in contexts where you don't have control over a meeting. So these are the things that I do in those contexts or things that I suggest that people do. The first thing I think about is um, how people process content. So you alluded to the idea that uh, you weren't involved, that you said you were rebuffed in the planning of the meeting. Um, one is like, let's put aside any assumptions about intent uh, for the people that were putting together the meeting, whether or not they should have included you and why. So we're in the meeting and we don't feel like the meeting is going well. We're having a negative uh, reaction. We don't see uh, we don't see people are aligning, or there if there's conflict, it's not being directed in a purposeful way. Because conflict isn't a bad thing; it's just a question of like, are we clear on why we're in conflict and what the what the direction it needs to go is. So one thing that I suggest is if there isn't already somebody writing or sketching on a whiteboard as a way of capturing the main ideas of the conversation. I suggest taking that role. So the first thing you do is I, you know, I recognize I'm feeling tension in this meeting. If there is a whiteboard or if there is an easel, just get up and start writing down things. Stand by the whiteboard, pay attention. You don't have to stay in the seat. Um, just stand by the whiteboard and say, oh, I'm just going to write down some key ideas. This is going to help me remember. Uh, what, what I need to do from this meeting. Don't need to critique the meeting in the middle of the meeting. Just say, I'm going to do this to make meaning for myself. What that does as a practice is it creates a feedback loop. So instead of people keying to the last few things that were said, they'll start keying to the visual record. And by keying to the visual record, if a couple of things are possible. If the conversation really is not going well, you'll have proof. And you'll be able to point at five or six lines ago and say, we were talking about this before, but now we're talking about this. How does this connect to that? 
explain that? Or how do these five things that we've collected, like we've been exploring these three or four spaces, how are they related? Because it seems like we're just going all over the map or we don't have a purpose here. So as a tactic, that is one thing that I suggest, especially to designers that are comfortable with whiteboards. And um, to people who aren't designers who are, are, aren't comfortable with whiteboards, it's a great thing to practice and it's not that hard. You don't have to draw. You can just write like the key phrases that you hear. Or like if somebody says, this is important, we have to accomplish this second quarter goal, write down, we have to accomplish this second quarter goal and what the goal is. Um, so that's the first thing. As a, so that's a tactic. At a, at a uh, theoretical level, or at a more like general level, the thing you wanna look for as you're writing or capturing or whatever you're doing to create a feedback loop is you want to take a step away from the agenda or a lack of an agenda. So if there's, if you know, you alluded to the idea that no one had designed the meeting. One of the things that I see and hear about and talking about meetings a lot is have an agenda in advance and distribute it so people know what to talk about and do a pre-read. Fine. All of those things are good habits. But it is not necessary to have an agenda or a pre-read for people to align on a task and execute on a decision. It depends on the culture of the team and the skills in the room, right? So if I'm in a meeting that feels agendaless, whether I get up and do capture or not, the thing I'm looking for in the conversation is I want to keep back to the outcome. What is the outcome that someone believes, and it's going to be me if I'm the person in the meeting that's not going well, what is the outcome that, I'm be that I believe this meeting should enable? Whether or not it's enabling it what, is it, what is it I think it should enable? We have this weekly stand-up meeting because we want to be aligned on tasks so that we're not wasting money having people duplicate efforts. That's an outcome. We have, and that's, that's just a process outcome. What's even better is like a business outcome. We have our team meeting every quarter because our team culture is really siloed and we want to solve for that. That's a business outcome. And even better is like, what's the, what's the, the user outcome or the customer outcome if you're in a business that's serving customers? So start with the outcome. Just think, okay, what's the outcome that we're trying to serve here? And then... Drill down into some decisions you think we should be making in that time. So if we're in service of this outcome, seems to me like this decision and this decision are what we need to make in this time. Um, there is uh, uh, Google Ventures, the, the Google uh, Venture Capital, the arm of Google that does venture capital funding. They have a nice presentation on how to do meetings as a startup. Um, and there's a chart in that that's like, should I have a meeting? And their decision tree, the first tree is, are there decisions we, meet, we need to make? If yes, then there's more chart. If no, then don't have a meeting. There are other ways to have that kind of conversation, you know, asynchronous ways. Um, it doesn't require real time uh, interaction. So like the, to sum up the two things, number one, get up and draw meaning or write meaning in a way that 
everyone can share it. So don't write tiny on, on your notepad or don't type into your laptop to take notes. Get up and take notes that's a visual record for everyone to share. That comes from an old book called uh, How to Make Meetings Work from the 1970s, actually. Um, and then the second thing is ask yourself, you know, just in your own mind or on a little piece of paper in front of you, okay, what are the outcomes and what are the decisions that can happen right now in support of those outcomes? And okay. you know, those two yeah. things come to so mind. So the, yeah, I mean, my mind is just going like 100 miles an hour here. Um, okay, so two, two comments, one little one and then one, one that, that might be bigger. Little one being at so as you were talking, I'm because I'm thinking that the meeting I'm referring to that that was not comfortable mm -hmm. uh, is actually it's not a work meeting per se. It's a um, I volunteer for a let's just say a community organization, right? So it's it's one it's one of those meetings mm -hmm. and and as you were talking I real you know what happens we we meet in a room that has no writing surfaces mm -hmm. so uh, as you were talking I realized that is what I think a real major dysfunction of the meeting is oh. that there is no place to write anything down which is solvable right I mean I even have a little I have a, one of the there's these little um, like there's not even an easel in there, but there's these little uh, the little uh, portable the whiteboards that do a triangle. They make it's a cardboard and it turns itself into a triangle stand, you know, with oh. like small size. So it's like, well, I can always bring one of those. So that that was uh, I, I was thinking, yeah, that would that would actually probably drastically change change the meeting but then I was also thinking as you were talking um, I was thinking about that group and the, the context and the dynamics and the history of that group and then I was also thinking of you know some other uh, kind of corporate type meeting histories I've been involved with and in the thoughts that came to me that I know are not going to be new for you Kevin but but I It'd be interesting to talk about. One is that you know really the things that go on or don't go on in a meeting are are uh, um, you know meetings are these um, physical manifestations of all the other stuff that's going on with that group, the relationships, the the function, the dysfunction. You and, know, and I will of, I will like to. Ch ch uh, chip in when you're done yeah. with your thought. Uh, you know, so you, you know, you've got all this stuff, right? We're humans. We're messy humans. Uh, we are not um, perfect in many, many ways. And all of that stuff comes together <laughs> when you get the group of people in the room in the meeting. So if you have culture problems, corporate culture problems, if you have trust issues, if you uh, whatever the history is, you know, it all, it's all in there in the room with you. Um, and and I think that's part of the, the, you know, the complexity of it. But also, as you were talking, I'm thinking, so is this like really a, you know, does it work in reverse? Like if you, if you, if these meetings start to change because they are designed now in a certain way, you know, 
is there is there should you even consider or is it really a waste of time to think about starting to change the um, culture at least of that group or that team or god forbid you know the larger corporate culture because you're changing the well can i can i step in here quickly yeah go ahead so look the reality is the vast majority of people i know and talk to who are you know, maybe self-described corporate stiffs who they they're a project manager and a this and a that, and they're not they they're not a fun um, high level something. They don't get to go to the fun meetings. Most of them hate meetings. They loathe meetings with a fiery passion. The meetings are boring. They don't get anything done, and they basically get sit there in silence for sixty minutes, like, and then the for the. the, the Everyone turns to them for the 90 seconds they're needed. They, you know, they swing the bat and then they, they go back. I'll, I know, I mean, there, there are me- many memes on the internet about how terrible meetings are. I have, it seems like w- that when people use the word meeting, there are really three different things that are happening. The first is a true meeting, which um, to me seems like, uh, think, think of people who there's no power dynamic or weird uh, messy trust issues in there. Just, just like a bunch of friends getting together on an equal playing field, um, trying to design something, for example. And those meetings are awesome. And they're so productive and you have all these ideas and everyone leaves really happy. And that's, that's like, uh, that's a great meeting. But then I think there are two other things that happen that people call meetings. The first um, is presentations. So people say, hey, uh, we're having, we're going to have, you know, t- the 1030 meeting, it's going to happen. And I mean, I, I've been in these and what it is, is we need to bring everyone up to speed. And so they say it's a meeting, but then like the three teams give it's like put on like a PowerPoint and give the presentation about how the pitch to the client went. And so it's just essentially a 60 minute presentation where they talk and everyone just sits there, listens, and then someone important asks a couple questions. So there's a lot of that. And then the other thing is that a lot of times um, in places where there's really, where there's um, probably unhealthy power dynamics in the corporate structure, people say they're having a meeting, but what they're really having is orders in which uh, everyone gets assembled and the head honcho in the room, they, they turn to that person and the person, you know, asks questions and is funny and charismatic and you know, it, it's, it seems good, but really what it is, is everyone is just waiting for this person to make a decision. And so they show up, the person asks some questions, they give them information, and then the person makes a decision and just tells everyone what the orders are that they then do. So I perhaps am a little more cynical about meetings than uh, a lot of people because I don't know, I just, there seems to be a lot of unhealthy things that do happen in meetings. I think meetings should be fixed and changed, but I'm not, okay. You're not convinced it'll work. Uh, No, I mean, you can, but I just, how do I say this? I, I want, I'm curious what your thoughts are about why, for example, so many companies have so many terrible meetings that so many people loathe 
and I mean the people who are you know high level stuff it seems to me it, you know it's in my personal experience the higher up the food chain you go the better the meetings get and the more productive mm -hmm. the meetings get and no, the interesting that you say that I don't I don't have a position on that I would love to develop a way to ask that question and get data mm. uh, even in my own company uh, that would be a fun question to yeah. ask based on the level like we have a pretty clear hierarchical level role structure at Capital One you know what is the quality of your meetings across the org and then um, you know see how that correlates in a regression against role I guess it's um, more like the yeah. I think I think it's more the power dynamic the, the magnitude of power dynamic so the well, difference between a VP and a president yeah. is, is maybe small the power dynamic do you mean distance between it's, like I'm this level and you're three levels below me or something see uh, close but I feel like um, the uh, it, this this is a great conversation I feel like power dynamic is not um, linear. Oh uh, no, I agree. Yeah, so so the difference between the the intern and the employee is like the biggest. And then like the bottom level like like the bottom level like new hire to the, you know, um like senior product manager is huge. And then product manager to like VP of product manager is smaller and VP anywhere. so as you move up the chain, the power difference actually gets you know, lower. Like it's basically the lower you get the easier it is for you to get fired if you mess up. And so <laughs> I, th I think the power dynamic gets greater. So first of all, uh, Guthrie, uh, Guthrie as in Woody Guthrie or Guthrie? No, Guthrie. Like Guthrie. the, yeah, exactly. So, Guthrie, thank you for saying probably what lots of people would say listening to this conversation, which is, uh, let, you know, let's get real. They, they suck. They suck in these ways. <laughs> I think um, they could be fixed. I'm really, I'm being a devil's advocate, but I'm internally an optimist well, about meetings. I, so. I support both positions, and I have lots of thoughts. Yeah. A lot of that. So there's, there's a, I, I want to kind of work backwards through everything you said and then get back to um, Susan's points about this idea of in a meeting how it manifests the health of the culture, because mm -hmm. there's some really good content there from mm -hmm. other authors. Uh, so working backwards, let's talk about these three kinds of meetings you, you described. So you talked about the, the, the true meeting, which is a flat power structure, that we're all equal in this meeting. And it has the equivalence of, you know, friends at a bar, and we're able to converse in a really flowing way. We're in a state of flow. There's a, there's a label for good meetings, uh, brainstorming meetings. Excuse me. It's a label for good brainstorming meetings uh, that is a psychological term called burstiness. Uh, <laughs> and burstiness is the characterized by when you're interrupted and it's good. So if some if people are interrupting each other and you feel like, oh, yeah, this is making the conversation better. Um, there's a great podcast that uh, Adam Grant did where he went into the Daily Show writer's room and he saw that in he saw that dynamic and looking through the lens of a, a research project that Google did called Project Aristotle, he was trying to tell the story about what team dynamics create, <coughs> excuse me, the conditions for that burstiness and really good conversations. And there's a lot, uh, there's a lot there that I think 
gets you closer to that true meeting that you're describing. Um, one of the things that's there, and the one you hear about the most in this conversation, is the idea of psychological safety. So you, you, when you were talking about power dynamics and power differential, yeah. whether it's linear or not, like it could be two VPs that feel like there's a power differential. It could be, uh, it could be a VP and a intern. It doesn't really matter if there's a believed power differential and you believe you're at risk, it's a function of psychological safety. So then the, questions, the question really becomes, both in the meeting and in the culture, what are you doing to create safety? Yeah. And you can, there are things you can do in a meeting to create safety, like as, as the senior person in the room, saying, all ideas are welcome. I am not in charge for the next hour. I'm not your boss. I'm here with you to solve a problem. This is the problem we're trying to solve. This is how I want to go about solving it. Let us begin. As opposed to being, being, it being implied. Like I think a lot of leaders, people in leadership positions, forget to say or choose not to say because maybe they think it's a bad idea that we're going to have the best conversation if you don't see me as your boss. And I know it's hard. But the more we practice it, and the more I say it in every meeting, the easier it will get. But I don't, I think you're 100% right. And I think a lot of bosses say, open door policy, you could say whatever you want. And if you do it later, they, it, the, the boss doesn't like it. And later it will come, come back and destroy your idea or your pitch or whatever. Like, I think a lot of people in companies live in I, probably unconscious fear of a lot of people, even those people say all the right stuff that a manager is supposed to say, and then their actions completely betray any sort of uh, trust, and just no one um, says anything negative or brings up the, the, the you know the big elephant in the company that no one wants to talk about. Yeah, it's a big well, problem. Yeah, first of all, I want to work at a company where there's elephants because that sounds fun. <laughs> second, I think what you're getting at is a little bit of what Susan was referring to earlier, Yeah. which is if I'm in your shoes, I've lost faith in my culture. Like at that point, if, if I'm really saying things like the managers are saying one thing, but they actually do something else, then you have to ask yourself, you, the, the employee, am I in an organization whose mission I believe in and do I believe that the organization itself believes in its own mission now that's beyond the scope of my book but I love the topic I think I, the vast majority of people don't believe that I think 85% of people think that their company is stupid and has and is run poorly so here's what I'll tell you I uh, I have worked in higher ed I've worked in uh, agencies for hire I have run an agency, I've started my own agency. I've started a software product with some friends, and I now work at a Fortune 100 bank with 55,000 employees. And the statement you just said, I don't know if I could prove. I don't know if I could prove that the vast majority of people believe that organizations don't actually act in the interest of their mission. I could prove that some people believe that. And I know of exactly people in my organization that don't believe it. But the more safe they feel to express that, the better off the organization is. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and that's a hard thing to learn. 
um, as a manager, uh, this is the first time in my career I've I've led a lot of teams uh, and managed people along the way, but I've never managed the scale of team that I manage now. And it takes effort sometimes not to react to really negative narratives uh, and say, it's okay that you feel badly. It's okay that you don't trust the organization. Let's work through that and understand what it is that gives you fulfillment that will be valuable for this organization so that you can get what you want out of this job. Or if this isn't the right job for you, that's okay too. That's one of the things that I love. Uh, a, a mentor and friend of mine, a guy named Jared Spool, one of the things he told me, I don't know, over the years at some point was a really good manager, that like the best manager, is somebody who recognizes their the person that reports to them, what is their next best job that isn't working for you? Yeah. If you are a great manager, you'll see um, like, oh, this person, they should be doing this. They're doing this right now to get to that, but they should really be doing this, and I'm going to help them get there. Because that's a good manager. A good manager isn't somebody who keeps you in the position you're in. A good manager helps you grow, right? So, but, but so many things to unpack. First, I think your belief that the vast majority of people uh, don't trust their organizations for a shorthand way of putting it. I don't know that that's true. I would love to see research to see if that's true. I don't know that it's not true. Um, in my, my anecdotal experience over the last 30 years of being in the workforce is I've seen it and I've also seen organizations that are really mission clear and have other cultural problems. But the, the, one of the things that I wanted to share was there's a book that I love about this very issue. It's a book called Humble Inquiry by uh, a guy named Edgar Schein, who is a business uh, faculty at the Sloan uh, MIT uh, MBA school. And the book is basically, the premise of the book is Every organization has two cultures. It has its aspirational culture, which is what you see in human resources materials, and it's what the recruiters will tell you. And then it has its actual culture. Those two cultures both exist for a reason. They may be way apart, or they may be very closely aligned. But the book, and it's a short book, it's like 125 pages, it's a book about how you can research that question for uh, an organization. So if I want to know for a team or for a large company or a, any size company, how far apart are their aspirational and actual cultures? And how would I learn that in, in a, a viable research way? This is a methodology for doing that. And I encourage people to check out the book. I refer to the book in my book just because the question, the way he develops questions are great. Like how do you ask questions to get people to be honest about their culture? And uh, his methodology for designing questions is a, a, a thing I adapt for designing questions in good meetings. So that's the first thing that occurs to me. The second thing that, that you said was the second kind of meeting, which are presentations. Uh, straight up, if you're not making decisions in presentations, there is a good chance that that is, shouldn't be a meeting, right? Yeah. Now, I'm going to put aside that premise and say there is a context where it matters. And I'm going to tell you about two specific meetings, one that you're familiar with and one that you may not be familiar with. Um, 
actually the second one I don't know if I can talk about so I'm gonna I'm gonna anonymize it uh, the first one is so every time Steve Jobs would present the new iPhone or the new Apple device or the new whatever that is a presentation right but that meeting of all the people that happen to be at the the Apple developers conference or the the announcement or whatever that meeting developed this like culture of meaning that really drove news cycles at a national or international level so it, it was using the 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 format of a presentation meeting to accomplish a very specific outcome that is more akin to like a movie launch or um, you know uh, some sort of other big uh, you know it, it was a technique of managing awareness at a at a way beyond the company level but I have seen people use that method in the company and I'll describe a, an example I'm aware of a company where the CEO a large company where the CEO every year will spend probably about six weeks developing and presenting the whole corporate strategy right and he does this at every level of the organization so he does it in big theaters it's a large organization he does it in big theaters and it's it's you know you just have to get a ticket and they fill the theater and he does it with all the executives and he does it it's like a road show and at a big company it's really hard to get alignment on strategic priorities but using a presentation that way and creating energy around, oh man, I just saw the the, the roadshow presentation. Um, have you seen it yet? No, I haven't seen it. I'm going to go next week. It kind of has the same effect of the Steve Jobs type of presentation, which is you're trying to influence a culture, and that is a mechanism that if it's done authentically, it can work really well. And I, I've seen it work really well. Now. That takes us back, if I'm looking at my notes, um, uh, to what I think Susan was, the, the reverse mechanism of meetings. So like, let's assume uh, that meetings are, are the canary in the coal mine of organizational culture. So if an organizational culture is, has problems, uh, and I'm going to use a really, uh, really powerful example, sexism. You know, so let's say there's there's an organizational culture that that has sexism in it, and it's kind of known, or there might be bad actors or, or whatever. In the meetings, interruptions might happen based on gender. And that's something that I would assume most women, if not all women, are familiar with. Can I tell you a really quick story? Yeah, please. Um, I actually did this really cool project. I'd love to do it again, but I, we were hired by a company to kind of figure out what their real corporate culture was. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the CEO, or not CEO, but the higher level types had, had an idea, but they were smart enough to think that something might be going on. And so I actually, for two days, I was like planted into their company, like a secret mole. And so I, all I did was I, I attended meetings that they had. Yeah. And they, they just say, hey, this is Guthrie. He's in the corner, you know, and like, don't worry about him. Like no one, you know, I was just like in and and ever just assumed I was the something, something and the other team or, you know, right. And all, my only job was I just I just observed and I took notes about the dynamics. And this was 
uh, you know, progressive West Coast company, blah, blah, blah. Um, never did anyone say anything about uh, sexism or have any problems. It was never mentioned by anyone, either high level or low level. Mm-hmm. And like the um, the interruptions at the meetings, 90-10 were men interrupting women. It's like Just what, organically. It was really cool to see. What an awful thing to see. Well, I mean awful, but it's like yeah, cool as a Jane Goodall in the wild. Yeah, that's an amazing example of what I'm talking about, which is that that you may have actual culture elements that you don't realize are actually there because they they have to do with your self-image as a leader or as a whatever your role is in the company if you don't want to think of your company as sexist that's not something that you would want to associate with your self-image but if you're not paying attention to what's happening in meetings as one measure of quality of culture um you really don't know your culture yeah and i think you know that's a wonderful, uh, wonderfully effective example of, of what I'm talking about. So then the question becomes this. I think where Susan started was, you know, oh, it occurred to me that we could change the culture of this com- community organization by just having a place to write on the uh, on a whiteboard or on an easel. Um, and something I wrote down to share uh, just f- before I forget, the best hack for no place to write on the walls is you get that easel, but you get the post-it notes easel. So the one that has like the big uh, rectangle. Right, the gigantic post-it notes. Yeah, get one of those, you put them up uh, across the wall before you start the meeting. Like, so that's the, the pop-up whiteboard solution that I use often, anytime I'm in that, that circumstance without a whiteboard. So uh, that's a hack, you know. But um, the question is, if meetings are a manifestation of bad culture, our meetings a leverage mechanism for influencing culture. Yes. And I think the, the answer is maybe, like the, the question is whether or not you believe it's the right mechanism, you know? It depends on what the cultural variable is and if meetings are a way to influence that variable. And I don't have, there's a, there, there's a chapter in my book about um, meetings and culture. Uh, and it's broken into three parts. How to use meetings to understand culture, how to use meetings to um, create culture, and then how to use meetings to change culture. And I think the opportunities to use meetings to change culture, the ones that I think are the most interesting are where an organization and its ecosystem have an opportunity and the culture is the barrier. So, I'm going to use an example from uh, the world of design. There was a a period in the design of digital interfaces where websites were king. Everybody was designing websites. And there were a lot of established practices and methods and approaches around designing websites, right? So what happened when the iPhone came out was all of a sudden, websites weren't quite as important, not because of apps, although eventually it started to become apps, but the way we thought of websites changed. So we thought of websites as less, um, let me look at the menu for the restaurant, and more, what's the phone number or what's the address, So to, to oversimplify. When that changed, 
the way teams were organized in, in lots of kinds of companies around making websites and the way processes were structured and the way those meetings happened around making websites wasn't serving the primary use case of the customer, which is I'm on my phone and I need a simple piece of information from a company. Uh, you know, I need to know who I call for this problem, right, or, or whatever. So it, besides launching a, an industry in, in books about how to create mobile websites, it really helped create the context for people to change the processes and the meetings in those processes around how they talk about design as it serves that function. And that is where I think meetings can change culture and should. If there's a, a something, an opportunity in the ecosystem or in the market for an organization to really have an impact on whatever it's trying to do, and their way of doing things is getting in the way of that because of their culture as manifested in a meeting, the meeting is a great way to point that out and try to change it. And there's a few examples in the book of how that, that how that took place. My favorite is one related to um, the government. And I'll share this with you uh, quickly. Uh, Jesse Taggart is a designer uh, and uh, that works for the California, the state of California. She used to work for the federal government. Now she's uh, working for the state of California. And she's a service designer, which means she designs processes and, and flows and you know, the, the front stage, backstage experience for the citizens of California and how the government actually delivers on the on the backstage end. There was a process by which employers could apply to get uh, jobs approved at different wage levels to employ people who are differently abled. So if I'm somebody who can't either physically or or cognitively do a traditional job but I have a really cool opportunity as an employer where I could create a kind of a different job that wouldn't, you know, that would be an income for that person, but it might not be uh, the, the, the level of income that is uh, what's required by law. And there's, there's ethical debates there that we don't have to get into. Um, I, there's a process by which I can apply to create that kind of job. And that process was drowning in backlogs. So there were hundreds of applications to create positions for differently abled people in the state of California that weren't getting approved and these people weren't getting employment. Uh, Jesse designed a two-day meeting where they focused on understanding the flow and, and who had to touch it legally and why and what mattered and, and how, to, how to make this process work. And she reduced that backlog by over 500% as a result of the conversations they had on those two days. And, and what they designed in that in that time. And to me, that's like the best example of like ecosystem opportunity, meeting, uh, you know, like traditional bureaucratic process meetings, getting in the way, bringing in a different kind of meeting and having a really positive outcome. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I'm gonna, uh, my community group, you know, my dysfunctional community group. Uh, it's on an annual cycle because it, it has to do with a, an event that happens at a certain time every year. So there's a cycle about, you know, when the meetings start for the next event and all of that. So, yeah. um, I, and every year, 
at the end of the whole cycle, I always make the statement, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) I I am not going to be involved next year. And then, you know, and then when the new cycle of meetings starts up, somebody always talks me into, you know, going to the meeting. And then I kind of get sucked in and try, try and do try and change something along the way, which kind of never works. But now I have a new plan. So we're, we're going to do an experiment because um, I'm going to uh, use the meetings. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do meeting design, even though these are not meetings I'm in charge of, but just as a participant. I'm going to try some meeting design things and see what happens. So uh, a year from now, Kevin, we need to get back on. I'd be and, happy to. And talk about my experiment. In fact, we might want to think about about things I could try during the year, you know, just as part of uh, data collection. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And then do a little experiment with it because I'm, I'm kind of interested. And, it, you know, and it is interesting, this particular group, you know, except for the event that culminates at the end of all these meetings, the meetings is the interaction of the group. Yeah. I mean, that is uh, not 100 percent, but that's that's largely so. So yeah. the meetings kind of define the group. There's something you said that I think is really important, and I just want to make sure that that we I, I definitely want to punch it, you know, like call it out. Um, because I think it relates to a lot of the stuff that Guthrie was talking about as well. Um, this idea of loathing meetings and um, the idea of not being in charge of the meeting. So uh, another metaphor to think about uh, is citizenship. So, And this is a metaphor that comes from a, a colleague of mine uh, who has a, a product around designing better meetings called Lucid Meetings. Um, but she has this, this concept, this model of meeting citizenship, which is to say rather than thinking about yourself as a recipient of the experience of a meeting, think of yourself as a, as a citizen in that meeting. And what is the model for being a good citizen in a meeting? It could be not tolerating uh, wastes of time. It could be drawing. It could be, um, you know, being a defender of different kinds of people and ways of speaking you know, ways of expressing uh, yourself in a meeting. But whatever that citizenship means to you, you know, instead of loathing the experience um, and not to be too, uh, you know, timely, but instead of loathing the country that we're in or, you know, depending on how you feel about the, the, the current political culture, you know, if you're on one side or the other, whatever your side you're on, if it's not your side, instead of loathing it, um, ask yourself as a citizen, you know, what's my job to what's my job to uh, to make change, and what is the change that I'm seeking, and what is what is the what are the boundaries of my ability to make that change in this context? Um, meetings are. Uh, it's interesting to me. I think people see them as such high stakes, and I certainly know of a lot of meetings at, at, at my company where when you get into the upper um, the upper echelons of the company, so much planning and effort goes into them and so much sculpting and there's so many hands on the message and we're trying to tell this really specific story. And at the end of the day, an hour's going to go by and 
the CEO in the room is just a person. The, the executive or senior vice presidents in that room are just people. And if you spend so much time over-indexing on like making it perfect, you're probably not going to be present for the opportunities that happen, you know, when they happen. And that's, you know, that's, a, that's something else that I think is, you know, as you're a citizen, part of being a citizen is actually like being present. And if you're, if you have a, a high re- level of resentment for the meetings that you're in, you're probably not as present as you could be. Yeah, that's a very, that's... very good point. And, and I know of another, you know, I, I've also, as you, as we've been talking through the hour, I've had in mind, you know, a couple of different meetings and Guthrie and I were both at one recently um, that was uh, interesting and, and, and uh, somewhat challenging and a lot of fun. And I think part of the reason that it unfolded the way it did is there was a little, you know, there was enough design that went in at the beginning to make sure that everyone had some level of that psychological safety that you were talking about and some level of of um, just comfort and, and excitement about the about the meeting and yet we didn't really know exactly what was going to happen and what to expect and we hadn't met the people that in the meeting in person uh, yeah. until we got there and so there were a lot of you know not sure and so that ability um, to and I, to me, again, you know, back to the idea of meeting design. To me, this is part of very much like like designing a product. Um, you know, we needed to be fully alert and fully present, and then able to adjust as we went along in, in terms of you know what we did and what we did next. And this was a, a, a long meeting, so this yeah. was a full day. Um, and, and being able to make those changes, you know, on the spot, in the flow, to keep the whole thing moving forward in a productive way, and and it 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 was a joy to do, and and I think you know a lot. It had to do with the people that were there and everyone being motivated and interested, um, but it also I think had to do with with some of these design aspects that that you write about in your book. So. Um, Anyway, Kevin, I think the three of us could probably talk for about five hours, and um, and maybe our audience would want to listen to that, but I'm not sure if they do or not. Uh, but thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. And it's uh, a gr- it's a really great topic. I I really do think it's it's critically important that people that that meetings and culture, um, you know, it's so often just swept under the rug because no one wants to actually look at it. Um, yeah, but it's really, really important. Really important. Yeah. So, for those of you listening, if you haven't read Kevin's book, Kevin M. Hoffman, it's called Meeting Design for Managers, Makers, and Everyone. I'm looking at my copy here. I'm, I'm holding it in my hand. Um, published by Rosenfeld Media. And Kevin, if people want to get hold of you um, to talk about this or anything else, what is there a good way to reach you? Yeah, Twitter is always good. It's uh, Kevin M. Hoffman on Twitter. There's other Kevin Hoffmans on Twitter, and they won't. Uh, they they always get tweets when I speak or do a thing like this. <laughs> so make, sure, make sure you include the M uh, when uh, it's Kevin M. Hoffman. The book is in my Twitter bio as well. The other thing I I I I'd be loath to not mention 
is that if, if you feel like this is something that you want to do, you're interested in not only designing meetings, but you practice design, uh, frankly, I'm looking for a lot of really good designers and researchers. Uh, I don't know if you have a researcher audience on, on your podcast. I would yeah, imagine. we do. We definitely, definitely do. do. So I'm looking for a couple of researchers right now. Um, uh, you mean to hire at Capital to, One? To hire at Capital One. If you go to CapitalOneCareers.com um, and you search design research, uh, you'll see a couple of jobs uh, in card design that are jobs that would directly report to me. Um, I'm really, I've been looking for researchers for a few months now, and I would love to love to talk to you if that's something that you do. Uh, if you practice any kind of design research um, or design generally, uh, we have a lot of great opportunities at Capital One. And, and what and what part of the world? Yeah, uh, it's definitely on site, but there are a lot of sites. So we have offices in in uh, the Northern Virginia, Washington D.C. area. We have offices in Chicago, where our research practice is headed. We have offices in New York. We have offices in Richmond, Virginia. We have offices in San Francisco, and we have offices in Plano, Texas. Cool. So really, any of those locations are fun. Wonderful. Um, but um, but for for the for working with my team, it would be Chicago, Richmond, or Northern Virginia, D.C. And uh, if you happen to be in Plano or San Francisco or or uh, or Chicago, I'm in Chicago. Yeah, Chicago. Actually, Chicago is my team as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, just anybody listening, uh, if you enjoyed the conversation and, and you think you might like to practice meaning design in a really great design team, uh, I, I would love to hear from you. There you go. And I would just like to encourage everyone, if, if you're in a company, especially a, a larger company, um, either you're and you are curious about what's actually going on in your in in kind of your company either yourself or get get some sort of spy to just sit in and just take notes and not be part of a meeting and just analyze how people are communicating if people are using email like what what you know uh, a lot of times people have the meeting and then as soon as the meeting's done like the three people get to the side and like actually make the important decisions or then it emails you know goes around so just just to see how decisions are being made in your company and especially i think you'll be really 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 surprised at um how incredibly rare it is for someone uh to interrupt the boss person in the room especially if the boss is male and the interrupter is female. I think you'll I think I think most people will be very surprised at um, exactly what the dynamics are. So I encourage everyone to do that just to just to, to see how things are. All uh, right. Hey, any other questions? Kevin, thanks so much, Great. Kevin. And uh, I, I hope we can have you back and talk more. Yeah, anytime. Just uh, shoot me a line and I would be happy to join. I want to I want to hear how the experiment goes. I'm really excited. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.